Yeah, let me take us to the Lord in prayer as we begin our time together. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for your faithfulness and goodness to us in Christ Jesus. And truly our hearts are prone to wonder and wander. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you even as we get to your word. In Jesus' precious and worthy name I pray. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. We're going to look at for the first eight verses in this chapter. Genesis chapter 17. You know, in, his, uh, in his classic work, Knowing God, J.I. Packer begins uh, with a quote from the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon. And remarkably, Spurgeon actually made this quote or said these words when he was only 20 years old. Here's what he said. He said, it has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of the Christian is the Godhead, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God who he or she calls as his or her father. He goes on to say there is something exceedingly improving to the mind in the contemplation of divinity. That is, when you think of God, there's something exceedingly good about it as regards to its impact on the mind. It is a subject, he says, so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with, in them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, behold, I am wise. When you look at other subjects other than God, and as you've studied them and read about them, you go away thinking how wise I am. But when we come to this master science, that is the study of God, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise. But he is like a wild ass's cold, and with solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. He goes on to say, no subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than the thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around on this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and of him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious trinity. I understand it's a long quote. I've not, I'm not done yet though. He goes on to say, nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And whilst humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consol consolatory. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, uh, there's balm for every sore. 
Would you lose your sorrow, he says. Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. And he goes on to say, it is to that subject that I invite you this morning. Powerful words. Perhaps you might want to go ahead and listen to those words once again, not from me, but on your own. Don't go and check internet right now. But in your free time, go check that quote out. Why is that so important? You see, because your concept of God will determine your behavior and the very trajectory of your life. If your concept of God is small, then that will be your expectation from him. And that is how you will live your life. But if your concept of God is as the Bible calls us to have, it's large and it's magnanimous and you have a high view of God, then that is what you will come to expect from him and that is how you will live your life. You see, your behavior is informed by your view of God. And so it is to that subject that we now turn. Now, in, in a sense, every sermon that a minister of God preaches is about God because it proclaims God. It announces his character and his actions and his words. But every now and then you come to a text that is just brimming with, that is just overflowing with who he is. And we come to such a text today. Genesis chapter 17. Based on a new name that we were, we were introduced to in today's text, I've titled our lesson uh, for today, The Almighty God, The Almighty God. There are two things that I want to cover in the first eight verses as we look at it today. His call to Abram reiterated, that is repeated, and then secondly, his covenant with Abram renewed. His call reiterated, his covenant with Abram renewed. Read with me the first three verses. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face. As we think of God's call to Abram reiterated, First of all, we consider the challenge that is there in this text. You know, in our Bible, there is a small gap between Genesis chapter 16, verse 16, and Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. But in reality, 13 years have elapsed between those two verses. If you look with me in verse 16 of chapter 16, there it tells us that Abram is 86 years old. And at the end of chapter 17, or at the beginning of chapter 17, we are told that Abram is 99 years old. You know, while we are to read large swaths of scriptures, we are also to every now and then zone in on a particular passage or a particular paragraph or a word or a thought in the scriptures. And there is a time to read fast and there is a time to slow down in our reading. You see, when we read and study our Bibles, it is time to slow down and read. Why? Imagine with me between verse 
16 of chapter 16 and verse 1 of chapter 17, 13 years have elapsed. What is going on through Abraham's mind? Those who were with us when we studied chapter 16 know what Abraham did. He listened to his wife and through that union with a slave girl named Hagar from Egypt, uh, there uh, comes about a child. Abraham is perhaps thinking, did I mess it up so bad that God is upset with me and has decided to break his covenant with me? Have I reached a point of no return in my relationship with the Lord? In fact, in chapter 16, there is no recorded conversation between God and Abraham. To make it worse for him, actually there is a recorded conversation between God and Hagar, the Egyptian slave, but not with Abraham, the exalted father. You know, while Abraham may have had many thoughts racing through his mind about what his status with God was, you know, our life can resemble his in so many ways. After all, even in our life, we are not always on the mountaintop, spiritually speaking. What is Christian life after you become a follower of Christ? It's the daily routine of just obeying and being faithful to our great God. And that can seem mundane and, and very much habitual in so many ways. It's been 24 years since God has called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, at the end of chapter 11, beginning of chapter 12. And so far, what does he have to show about his relationship with God? Not even his own son. He doesn't have the land, and he certainly doesn't have any spiritual blessings, so to speak, from the world's perspective. But you see, the world's perspective can be skewed in so many ways. While the world doesn't realize it, Abraham is actually growing. He's growing in his faith. How do we know that? We will see that in the way he responds to God in this chapter. He is growing mature. In the daily routine of life, Abraham is growing mature. And just like Abraham, we grow mature too in the daily routine of our lives. Perhaps you're saying to yourself, Lord, how long do I wait for a response to that prayer that I offered the other day? Or perhaps some sitting here, how long do I wait for a life partner, O oh Lord? But what for you may be a long wait for God is a time that he continues to do things that are not visible to you or others, but they're for your good and Therefore, your growth. It's when seemingly nothing is happening that a lot is happening. God is working behind the scenes in order to put in place things to bring about his plans and to accomplish his purposes. Isn't it Paul who writes to the Romans, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. You see, God is now ready to reveal more about himself, more about what he expects from Abraham, and more about what he is committing to. First of all, then, the challenge. But secondly, the call itself. Notice in verse 1, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Similar to chapter 12, Yahweh appears to Abraham, but this time it is different. It's different because this will be one final time that all the particulars of the covenant are flushed out in more detail. Uh, this will also be one of those um, detailed treatments of God's covenant with Abram. 
But finally, this will also be the last time that a covenant is mentioned. After this, we will begin to see the fruit of the promise or the covenant that God has with Abraham. It's no wonder that before this chapter, the word covenant, which is the Hebrew word berit, is only once used in connection with Abraham. That's in chapter 15, verse 18. Only once. But in this chapter, we find that word used at least 13 times. It's used in verse 2. I will establish my covenant. In verse 4. And then twice in verse 7. Uh, then in verse 9. Verse 10. Verse 11. And then twice in verse 13. 14. Twice in verse 19. And then in verse 21. Uh, this chapter is filled with Words that reflect God's promise to Abraham, the word covenant. How refreshing then to see the Lord appear to Abraham and reiterate his call. Notice then a few particulars about this call. Uh, first of all, who God is. He is the God Almighty. He begins by declaring who he is. He is God Almighty. The word there is El Shaddai. And so far in our study of God's word, we have come across so many words that address God and describe God. For example, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word there for God is the word Elohim. Uh, that is to say, he is the infinite, all-powerful God. Uh, the one who shows by his works that he is the creator, the sustainer, and the supreme judge of the world. That is Elohim. But also, another word is used for God. It is the word Yahweh. Uh, this is the covenantal name for God of Israel. Uh, this speaks to his uh, self-existence and his self-sufficiency. While everyone depends on him, he depends on no one. He is self-sufficient, Yahweh. And then, thirdly, we came across another word for God, El Elyon. This is the name that is introduced to us in the account of Melchizedek. Remember, Melchizedek is the priest of the God Most High. Uh, the one who is exalted is the one who is higher. Uh, God is higher in rank. Uh, he is higher in title. He is higher in beauty. He is higher in intelligence. He is higher in position. He is higher in authority. There is no one higher than our God. He is God, El Elyon, the Most High. And to consider anyone as equal or higher than this God is to sin against him. It is to rebel against his authority. Why? He is God, El Elyon, the Most High. And then last chapter, in chapter 16, we came across another word for God. El Roy. And that is, he is a God who sees. How foolish to think that what I am doing in the privacy of my own bedroom or in my room that no one sees it. No, Elroy, God sees everything. Not only that, uh, this is not exactly a word used for God, but it's a name given to Hagar's son Ishmael, which means the God who hears. He's a God who sees. He's a God who hears. That means that he's a God who is involved and he, he cares. Now, with such a God who is Elohim and Yahweh and El Elyon, and Elroy, with such a God, what a travesty and a tragedy for man to run after anyone that is lesser. He alone is worthy of our praise. We are not yet done, though. 
He's also, as this text mentions, El Shaddai. I hear translated as God Almighty. You know, linguists and scholars debate about what the meaning of the word truly is. The word Shaddai appears on its own for about 31 times in the book of Job. And it appears about six times in the book of Genesis itself, and then in Exodus and Ezekiel with the prefix, prefix El, El Shaddai. Uh, God, in fact, says to Moses in Exodus chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, I am the Lord, and I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. Uh, which is to say that these, to these gate patriarchs of the faith, they knew God as El Shaddai, as God Almighty. Uh, that is the name that they were familiar with. But some have also defined Shaddai as referring to his sufficiency. Uh, that is a closer meaning to the word Yahweh, while most others do agree with that understanding of that word. But almost all of them say that Shaddai actually refers to his power and his strength. This power is seen in his control of nature and all that happens in that domain. But this power is also seen in control over individuals. After all, who can really proclaim with certainty that one individual will have a child when all the odds are truly stacked against him to have that come to pass? Who can proclaim that? Only the one who controls the individual. You see, the one who knows the future is the one who controls the future. How else can we understand that? We can understand the more, more deeply the meaning of this word as we look at its uses in the book of Genesis. And after six times that is used in the book of Genesis, almost all of those times, it's used in a connection with something. You don't have to turn there, but in Genesis 28.3, it says, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. In Genesis 35, verse 11, it says, I am God Almighty... Be fruitful and multiply. In Genesis 48, verse 3, it says, God Almighty appeared to me in Luz, in the land of Canaan, and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous. And so his power then is seen over individuals in making them fruitful and multiplying them. God Almighty is one who is all-powerful, and this power is exercised in blessing his people in making them fruitful. God is the one, you see, who gives children. Isn't it Psalm 127 by Solomon? It says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. Behold, he says in verse 3, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. This is God Almighty. He is El Shaddai, the Almighty, the all-powerful and all-sufficient God. Now this is very, very important for Abraham to note and to remember because everything that follows from here on flows from this particular identity of God. He's not only willing, you see, he's also fully capable of giving Abraham and Sarai children. The fact that Abraham was 99 and Sarai was 89 years old is no problem at all for this great God, El Shaddai. 
You see, physically and in every way, an insurmountable task. A child at the age of 90? Impossible. Uh, but the, for the one who created the womb, you see, he commands the womb and it obeys. El Shaddai. You see, nothing is too difficult for him. He has promised and he fully intends to deliver. While he will do his part, what is Abraham's responsibility? What is expected from Abraham? Notice, secondly, in the same verse, walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. First, there is a revelation and then there is an expectation. What is expected from Abraham? He was to walk before God and be blameless. You see, to walk with someone displays closeness in a relationship. To walk behind someone displays a passive allegiance to their leadership. Uh, but to walk before someone brings both of those aspects together. You see, to walk before someone is to walk in respect, in honor, and in fear of them. Abraham is to walk in such a way that he shows respect and honor and fear of God's majesty and his holiness. Why? Because he is El Shaddai. He is almighty. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. The phrase is actually literally translated, walk around the face of me. Or walk before my face. In other words, walk looking at my face. We have to keep our eyes on him. That is what it means to walk before him. Walk before me. But there's another imperative, and be blameless. He was to be blameless. Uh, the word there is translated also as unblemished or without defect. Uh, now, this is not a call to live a perfect life. It's not a moral perfection that Abraham is being called to. If that was the case, then we would have a tough time explaining how David uses the same word for himself 11 chapters after he commits adultery with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 22. So that's not what it means. But what does it mean then? Well, the Hebrew word literally means complete, complete, whole. And it is a word that describes a wholehearted commitment and wholeness of relationship. In other words, this is saying, Abraham, I want all of who you are. I want your total and complete commitment to me. I don't want just one part of who you are. I don't want you to consider the Lordship of Christ only in one area. No, I want you to commit all of who you are to myself. Be blameless. Now that is some serious commitment. Uh, this is no half-hearted response. Abraham was to walk before God. That is, he was to look at his face and he was to be fully committed to this God. And that particular phrase is, is just pregnant with meaning. You see, what is true of Abraham should also be true of us if we call ourselves followers of Christ. When God saves you, his expectation from you, his expectation from me is that we walk before him, we walk looking at his face. We have to walk looking at his face. What that means is that we have to live in such a way uh, that his face, that his person, his character, his, his presence is always before us. So that our walk, our lifestyle, and our behavior is perfect. It's blameless. It is completely 
and wholly dedicated to him alone. There is to be absolutely nothing that comes between our relationship with our God. Walk before me and be blameless. What is the agreement there? Verse 2. Notice the opening statement of that agreement in verse 2. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. It reveals to us a God who actually initiates a covenant. He's the one who initiates and confirms the agreement. I will establish my covenant. Notice the parties of the covenant there. This is a covenant that is put in motion. It starts with an agreement between God and Abraham. And what's the result? A major part of the agreement is mentioned. God was going to multiply Abraham exceedingly. And this is like the preamble to the agreement, a preliminary kind of an introductory statement to what is to come ahead. God then reiterates his call to Abraham. He first called Abraham in chapter 12, and we can say he called him from darkness to light, from the domain of Satan to the domain of his son. He justified him. And now we see as we come to chapter 17, he's sanctifying Abraham. He's being purified. He is growing in his faith. Walk before me and be blameless. Now to such a call and to such a demand, how does Abraham respond? Notice verse 3. Abraham fell on his face. He lay prostrate before him. There is That is, he fell on his face. Now, there is something to be said about our physical response to God, as we are able, of course, to do. To fall on your face before someone is to show them the highest level of respect and honor and commitment. Earlier, when he received the covenantal promises, remember in chapter 15, his response was one of complaint. When God reiterated his covenant at that time, he said to God, God said to him to begin with, Abraham, your reward shall be great. O Lord, what will you give me since I am childless? But here, notice there is a difference. He is on his face. He has grown in his faith, hasn't he? He is maturing. He understands more of who God is and he understands more of who he is. He understands that God is a great savior and that he is a great sinner. He's on his face. No words to speak to God. Before we leave this passage, I want to draw three quick lessons from this particular section. Notice, first of all, the Bible calls us to have a high view of God. You see, what comes to our mind when we think of God? What comes to your mind when you think of God? Is he someone you think when only when you are in trouble? Or when you need something? Or is he someone, as some describe him, as the cosmic joy killer? One who sees you from high having fun and then spoils the party. Because the Bible doesn't have anything to do with that kind of a characterization of God. These are completely foreign concepts to the biblical God. The God of the Bible is an almighty God. The one who is all-sufficient and all-powerful. He has power over nature, and he has power over the individual, and he is the only one who is always, always in complete control. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says, 
what comes into your minds or into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. Goes on to say, for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the more, most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. If you were to sin in the privacy of your room, you may not say this, but you're actually treating God as one who is not omnipresent. You're treating God as one who is not omniscient. He goes on to say, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that compass the church. Always, he says, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. What do you really think of God? Is he one who deserves your highest praise? Is he one who deserves to say to you, walk before me? and be blameless, and that you give yourself completely and fully to this God? Or is he one who just receives one day in the week from you and you're satisfied with that? The Bible, you see, has nothing to say to someone who is half-hearted like that. No, it calls us to have a high view of God. Secondly, a high view of God leads to a God-honoring life. You see, a right concept, a biblical concept of God impacts how you live on a daily basis. Walk before me and blameless is not only for Abraham, it's a call on your life and mine if we consider ourselves followers of Christ. You see, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. As if that is not clear, he further states in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Perfectly? No. Aren't we learning that in First John? No, we will sin. But that is not the inclination of our hearts, especially if you're a child of God. You're not to look for loopholes to sin. Rather, you're to glory in God's grace on your life and his mercy towards you. If you love Christ, you, your heart's inclination will be to obey him. But there's a third lesson. A God-honoring life displays growth. As you consider Abraham's life, we clearly see him grow. We clearly see a pattern of growth and maturity. You see, if you've been walking before the Lord for a season of life, you're called to, and I am called to, be a, to be very patient with those who are new to the faith. If you've been walking with the Lord for some time, our, our job is to be patient with those who are new to the faith. Don't be too quick to rush to judgment or don't be too quick to dismiss a fellow follower of Christ. You want to give everything you can to give them space and create for them an environment where they can grow in their faith. We have to remind ourselves how patient God has been with us and with you and with 
me how many times you've stumbled through your journey as you walked before the Lord. Come around and support and cheer on a new follower of Christ. A God-honoring life, you see, displays growth. First of all, then, as we think of the Almighty God, we see his call to Abraham reiterated, and then secondly, his covenant with Abraham renewed. Quickly, as we look at a few things, the four things that I want to highlight in the rest of the verses for us. First of all, notice the progressive revelation of the covenant. You know, we have been learning about God's covenant with Abraham or the Abrahamic covenant and its impact that is threefold. Uh, there is the promise of the land, there is the promise of the descendants, and then there is a covenantal relationship that is established. And in this next section, we see them restated and renewed, and we are given more insight into the promises, a more detailed kind of description and explanation of what that covenant is. If you were to track the progress from the first time that God interacted with Abraham, it would be this. You can turn there, if you like, as you follow me, with each chapter from chapter 12. First of all, Abraham is called out of Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land, chapter 12, verse 1, to the land that God will show. The land then becomes this land in verse 7 of chapter 12, that this land becomes all the land which you can see in chapter 13, verse 5. And then in chapter 15, verse 8, we are told that the land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, as if that was not clear enough, now for the first time in chapter 17, notice verse 8, we are told, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. Now for the first time, Canaan is mentioned as the land that will be given to Abram. First of all, then the land. But secondly, also is the fact that he was told that he will be a great nation. As far as his descendants are concerned, in chapter 12, we are told in verse 2 that he'll be a great nation. And then chapter 13, verse 16, we are told that he will have descendants and they will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. In chapter 15, verse 5, we are told that he will be a father to a child and that his descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky. Here we are told that he will not only be a father of a nation, he will be a father of a multitude of nations, verse 4 and verse 5 and then verse 6. Not only that, we are told many kings and kingdoms will also come forth from Abram. And this will not be from the son of a slave girl, but from his own wife. At the age of 90, she will bear her first child. We will look at that, Lord willing, next week. That was as regards to descendants. Thirdly, as regards to his, the nature of his relationship is more defined. And in chapter 12, there's a more, more vague and a, and a general guarantee of protections for those who bless Abraham, and then there's curse for those he curses. In chapter 15, there's a prediction of an Egyptian slavery and the exodus. But in chapter 17, verse 7, we are told that this is an eternal covenant announced with Abraham and his descendants. See, more detail is being filled out as we move from chapter to chapter. We will look at some of it this time, but we'll look more at it, more at it next time when we meet, Lord willing. That then is the progressive revelation of the covenant. But notice, secondly and quickly, the parties to the covenant. 
You see, from the covenant being between God and Abraham, see verse 12, verse 2 rather, I will establish my covenant between me and you. Notice it expands to, to further include the descendants. Verse 8, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. If you're Abraham, you're thinking, this is a promise, and it is more than I had ever thought or imagined. I was merely going to be content with one son coming from my seed, but God is promising here not only to give to me, but also to my descendants. And that is true of us in some sense, isn't it? Our problem many times is that we tend to be satisfied with far less than what God intends to give us. Because many times he intends to give us far more. And I'm not necessarily talking about physical or material benefits. But I can surely say on the basis of God's word, we think of spiritual benefits. Just yesterday I was talking to someone who was planning to buy a house. And they were living in a rental property. And there was another house nearby. And somehow they waited for a time. Uh, and I was told that not only the price of that particular house came down, but there were some upgrades even done at that house. I'm not promising you anything here. But all I'm saying is, there's always benefit in waiting for God's time. Isn't it Paul who says in Ephesians, he is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. More relevant to our group as we think of what, what lays ahead for me. Lord, I'm, I'm not dating anyone. I'm not engaged to anyone. Lord, how long do you think I should be waiting? And I'm telling you, you trust the Lord through that process as you wait on him, as you continue to work on your own character. As we continue to think of the parties to the covenant, notice what God does in verse 5. He says, no longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be Abraham. God changes his name. Now, in our culture, a name change may not mean much. A rob to a bob doesn't really make huge difference, you might say. But in the Middle Eastern culture, it carried enormous significance. You see, your identity was tied to your name, and you were given a name... And the expectation was that you would live up to that particular name. What then was the significance of the name change here? You see, the name, new name, first of all, has a new meaning. Abraham means exalted father. He was called that when he had no children. And now he's called Abraham, which means father of many nations or a multitude of nations. In many ways, the new name of Abraham actually puts his faith on display. James Montgomery Boyce and a few others have mentioned this as they imagined Abraham after a conversation with God going back to his tent. Calls everyone. I just talked with God. Well, what did he say? Well, he said, my name needs to be changed. And uh, people who are listening into the conversation are thinking, well, he finally got it. I mean, he's called exalted father for such a long time. And he has no son to show that he is a father. And even the son that he has is really from a slave girl. So we are so glad to hear that God has finally 
call for a name change. But what is your new name? The father of many nations. And they're beginning to think the old man is beginning to lose his mind. You know, with one child, he's beginning to think we're going to get many more children. You see the kind of mocking that would be done to him or towards him as he shares his name. That's why it puts his faith on display. If, the, if there was anyone who did not live up to his name until now, it was Abraham. Having no children, he's called exalted father. Having just one son, and that too through a Hebrew, uh, through rather an Egyptian slave girl, he was now renamed Abraham, father of many nations. You see, this name change actually puts Abraham's faith on display because he could have easily said to the Lord, are you, are you sure, Lord? Which is what he said in chapter 15. What will you give me, Lord? I'm still childless. Uh, but this time, Abraham does not resist. There's no complaint. There's only receiving from God's hand. He accepted that name, fully believing that God was both willing and able to do what he said his name was. Father of many nations. You know, you, know, you and I are called children of God, child of God. If you have placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are a child of God. He is your heavenly Father. And how often do we fail to live up to that name? More times than we recall. And yet that is our standard and that is our call. We are children of the Most High God and God alone gives us the strength to live up to that name. Secondly then, the parties to the covenant, but thirdly, the particulars of the covenant quickly. Adam and Noah, you see, were commanded to be fruitful and commanded to multiply. But Abraham is actually told that God it is that will make him fruitful and multiply him. Notice verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and the kings will come forth from you. In effect, Adam and Noah and the others were commanded to multiply and to be fruitful and they were left to their own devices. But here God is the one who multiplies, who promises that he will be the one who would make Abraham fruitful and multiply him. Multiple nations will come forth from you and multiple kings will come forth from you as well. We've already seen the other aspect of the covenant. The land is also stated more clearly in verse 8. It says verse 8, this is the land of Canaan, something that we've already looked at. That brings us to the final section of what I want to look at with you, it is the price of the covenant. Notice with me verse 7 and verse 8. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. You know, when we think of the Abrahamic covenant, we're thinking of land. We're thinking of descendants and the covenantal relationship. But really, we're thinking of this relationship because ultimately, through this relationship, the Messiah would eventually come. Notice, first of all, there are two things I want to highlight for us in these two verses, and then we will close. Uh, this is something that we can miss even in the uh, NASB, and I think the LSB has actually gotten this right. The word translated as descendants in verse 7 sounds like it's a plural word. But it's act in actuality, it's actually a singular word. The word there is the word seed. 
So let me read it again. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you. Now why is that significant? Paul helps us to understand why that is significant. Even as he writes in Galatians, why don't we turn there? Galatians chapter 3 verse 16 Notice what Paul writes. He says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is Christ. You see, the covenant finds its ultimate fulfillment in the seed, not in the seeds. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. All the things that were said and done were done with an intention to point people to Christ. We'll talk more about that when we meet next time, Lord willing. But for now, notice that it is seed rather than seeds. But notice also, secondly, two times in those two verses, we are told that I will be a God to you. Verse 7 and then verse 8. In many ways, that is the ultimate prize, isn't it? Uh, that Yahweh, Elohim, and El Elyon, and El Roy, and El Shaddai is the one who will be a God to them. Uh, this is the very heart of the covenantal promise that is there. Land and all the descendants are, are very peripheral in comparison to the fact that he will be a God to them. All of the covenantal promises find its richest fulfillment in the fact that he was going to be a God to them. How do we apply this? apply this text to us. You know, this was something that God said to Abraham, but let me start off by saying he desires to be your God as well. And the only way that a holy, almighty God can be your God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this was the same way that the Israelites in the Old Testament were saved. They anticipated a coming Messiah who will pay for their sins and purchase their redemption. Just as today in the 21st century, we look back to a time in the past where he did come and he did pay for our sins and purchased our redemption. And so if you're here and if you've never repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will pay for your sins. And because they are against an eternal God, you will pay for your sins for eternity. Is there a solution? Yes. Yes, there is. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let him take your sins and let him carry your guilt and your burden and let him give you his righteousness. So that when God looks at you, all he sees is Christ's righteousness that is applied to you. If you are a follower of Christ, what great comfort this should give us. You don't worship, you don't believe in a God who is made in your image. No, you are made in his image. And the expectation from you is that you would walk before him and be blameless. He is the almighty God, El Shaddai, the only God who is willing and who is able to save you and me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It speaks to us with such clarity and 
with such conviction. As we put ourselves in Abraham's feet, Lord, we recognize how many times we've been like him. We have done things without consulting with you and then have wondered whether you have left us to our own devices, left us to our own self. But you're a gracious and a compassionate God, merciful, abundant in mercy, abundant in pardoning us. We thank you for the relationship that we share with you. Lord, we are thankful also for the reminder from today's text that we are called to walk before you just like Abraham was, to be blameless as well. And that is, we are to be completely dedicated to you. So to that end, I want to commit every one of us who is sitting here into your hands. Lord, help us. Uh, perhaps there are certain areas in our life which are not completely dedicated to you. Lord, help us to bring those under the Lordship of Christ. So that all of who we are is committed to all of who God is. I do commit our times with the small groups into your hands. Help us to explore what we've learned from this text. And help us, Lord, to be more like your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.